Welcome to Action's Antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. One thing that we all need to try to do to achieve the life that we want, no matter what form that takes, focus on what really matters. We live in a world full of distractions. There are distractions everywhere, and we all now have a portable distraction in our phones, purses, wherever we put our mobile phones, ready to distract us at any one given point in time. And sometimes the difference between someone that truly succeeds at achieving what they're set out to achieve, achieving the life they really want, and someone that doesn't quite get there is how often we get distracted and how long we allow ourselves to get distracted for. These distractions can come in, of course, many different forms. And my guest today, Katie Burkhart, is all about helping businesses focus on the things that really matter in order to achieve their mission. She's the mastermind behind a system called Matter Logic, which she implements through her organization, Matter Pulse. Katie, welcome to the program today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Definitely. So, first of all, uh, Matter Logic is the system you implemented. What did you view in the world that made you decide that this system was something that businesses needed to help them really focus on what matters? That's a great question. So I've had the pleasure of working with a number of extremely passionate leaders who are excited um, about their big idea and how they're going to improve or otherwise change the world. But I've also watched those same leaders struggle to pull themselves in one too many directions at any given time. And as a result, really stunt their growth you know, and their ability to do what it is that they set out to do. In particular, you know, I think about conversations with people where it's like, well, this trend is here. We should be pursuing that or whatever. And all of a sudden, whether it's between, you know, more ideas and things that they could do, because I find people with big ideas tend to attract ideas naturally, or through other things that are pulling their attention away from what it is they set out to do. I said, you know, we need to go about fixing this. And inherently, gravitated towards the purpose-driven model. But what I found in that process was that it wasn't overly well-defined. I ended up thinking, well, the issue is really that people don't have the right data. They don't have the right information. We should be trying to build technology to support that. But quickly it was, you know, actually, we don't really even have a good definition for what it means to run a purpose-driven business really to reap the benefits from it. You know, most people look at it as, oh, you do something impactful and, you know, it's inspiring. And I'm like, well, <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. You know, but, but once you have the statement and we'll debate whether that's the right definition later, yeah. what does that mean for how you run your business every day? And what does that mean in benefit for how you grow your business? And as you said, focus and being able to focus on the things that matter is the number one benefit. Purpose-driven business, do you see a lot of people just saying, okay, I have a mission statement, I have a statement of purpose, it makes a majority of people feel good, and that's enough right there, as opposed to just understanding like every single thing that really needs to be put in place to make that purpose actually come into fruition? So we see a lot of what we would call kind of purpose imposters. And there are oh, a number wow, okay. of big ones, you know, like, well, we're doing stuff with ESG, so we must be purpose-driven. We donate to a charity, so we must be purpose-driven. We made this really fluffy statement that doesn't mean a whole lot, but we have it. 
therefore we're purpose driven. You sort of have people in that camp who are like, I got my statement. I did the thing that I needed to do. Now I'm going back to business as usual. You also have a a group of people who are saying, no, I really want to do this. I really put thought into developing an actual purpose statement, but I don't know what to do after that. And in fact, the last study I read says something like 56 or 60%, some somewhere like well more than half of business leaders don't know how to operationalize it. Like we've gotten them to the point of saying, well, I have one and I understand why it's important, but I don't know what to do with it now that I have one. How do I actually run it all the way through my business? Where we're hoping to come into the conversation and say, okay, we worked that out for you. We've actually developed a system to make sure that it hits all the most important points of your living organization. Let's help you run that through line all the way down to the bottom and back up again um, so that things are uh, really clear um, and you're able to get aligned and then know how to stay aligned as you continue to grow. Um, So it's interesting to see where people are falling, but there will always be people who are sort of in that, you know, well, I feel like I checked the box, so I've moved on, you know, category. What I think about is the challenge of someone who just has a dollar amount, say, all right, we want a revenue growth of 10% for our shareholders. And there is a pretty good process in place for operationalizing that in the sense of like, okay, this is what we need to do. This is the revenue stream. This is the, you know, payment to people, payment to vendors, payment to your employees, et cetera. You know, it's it's a balance book type of a situation in a customer acquisition one. But when it comes to operationalizing a purpose, I've seen materials come around like the triple bottom line premise behind conscious capitalism with the six stakeholders and everything like that. Where do you think those kind of fall short? And what do you think people need to really think about when they say, okay, the purpose of what I'm trying to do, my business, my endeavor, is there a specific way you need to measure how you're enacting that purpose? Or is there a different set of operationalizing besides customer acquisition, cash flow, and all that stuff? So great question. Um, So I'm going to start sort of all the way back and say, Mm -hmm. the big shift is starting to say like the point of business is different. It always had a point and you landed on the first one, which is to make money, right? I'm here to make money and everything I do needs to be finely tuned to make me as much money as possible. There are numerous problems with that, but from a strategic point of view and from a cutting out the noise point of view, if you exist only to make money, there are infinite options that you could pursue in order to make money, which just amps up noise in your business because you are chasing every latest trend, every, well, this may make us some short-term cash and who cares about the long-term ramifications to my business or anybody else, but we made money. You know, that was the only goal. So it's not an overly strategic way to operate. Whereas if you shift to saying the point of my business is to deliver value and to deliver value to someone specific, that's actually why I exist. That is my purpose. And then look at how does everything I do drive towards delivering that value to actually fulfilling my purpose. Now you have to make strategic decisions because some things are going to fulfill that purpose. Many things are not. You start to be able to cut out that noise and really find that focus on what you're doing. Um, and that goes for everything that you do. The, the fundamental question that, that we ask um, in Matter Logic is what's the point, right? So now you've defined what's the point of having the business. You can then carry that question down everything you do. What's the point of having this meeting today? Um, and if it's not actually going to achieve something, probably don't need to have that meeting, um, which really keeps people focused on moving the ball forward. 
to your question about measurement, like how do you know what's going on? Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly, I think understanding where your money is coming and going from and why um, is a really important piece of understanding how money works. Because in the purpose-driven model, it's not the point, it's actually the resource, right? We need capital in order to pay our people well so that our team is there to execute our mission. We need capital to expand our infrastructure so we can grow our reach, right? Like we need money as a resource to move our business forward. So we do need to understand where it's going and why, and whether or not it's helping us to do those things. But more importantly, as from a measurement point of view, this is as specific to your point as anything else, which Mm -hmm. gets into, did we actually make the impact? Did we deliver the value we set out to achieve or not? So if you know what outcomes you're supposed to be delivering, have you thought about what we like to call your so what factor, which is, did you actually, as the person on the receiving end, get that value or not and be able to actually monitor that, which takes more time, certainly than money, which we can be watching down to the dollar and cent every day, depending on the size of your business. Impact is a longer game, but that doesn't mean that it's less worthwhile or something that you should not be tracking as regularly as makes sense, depending on what those points are relevant to your purpose and what outcomes you're here to try to achieve. Wow. And so first of all, as someone who's observed these trends and people just hop onto these trends without understanding it, agile development, for example, you know, everywhere it's like, oh, Google's doing this or some other big companies doing this. So we need to do that as well. I had never really kind of seen that connection between this money only model of business and hopping on these trends with reckless abandon, you know, but it makes sense, which is why, you know, my mind's kind of blown by this and understanding that as you said, and I um, kind of want to repeat this for my audience, that when the only guiding principle you have is making money, you have an infinite number of possibilities. And therefore, it's also easier to end up in a situation where a lot of people find themselves in, which is where you're like, I don't know what my purpose is yet. I know I want to do something different, something impactful, but I don't know what it is because there's an infinite number of possible ways to make money. You know, you can make money driving for Uber. If you decide that your purpose in life is to drive people around so they don't, you know, drive drunk and kill people, then that's actually a hundred percent consistent with that purpose. But it's a matter of understanding that. And then you said, get to that. So what factor? Because it seems like it's easy for someone to make a mission statement. And I'm sure you see a lot of these pretty vague, you know, mission statements that don't really make sense. Or someone that says like, well, I know what I want to do. I want to help people. Well, everyone wants to help people, I think, or maybe there's some sociopaths out there, but in general, everybody wants to help people. So that sounds like this mission needs to be specific, but it also sounds like is that when I think about all the different distractions there are out there, and there are just so many of them, there's no one real magic formula as, oh, this is the worst distraction, or you know, your screens are your worst distraction, your mind, your chatterbox. It's really about, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, understanding your purpose and seeing everything through the lens of that so that you say like, okay, this this thing is not part of that purpose and therefore I don't need to spend my mental energy on it. Exactly. And the way that we like to look at it, you know, is if you know what your purpose is, why are you bothering to do anything else? 
there is only so much time in the day to move things forward. Like, why are you wasting it doing something that isn't fulfilling that purpose and and moving your organization forward? Once you have it presented that way, it's like, oh, you know, it isn't this ancillary (laughs) impact thing. Like it's the whole point. It's like, yes, yes, it is. And figuring out what distractions exist for you is where that not only your purpose, but your core strategy really serves as a filter for what you're doing because the purpose is the focal point, right? But you also have to ask yourself a couple of other questions. You know, does it fulfill my purpose? Does it align with that? But then you can say, you know, does it fit within the unique capabilities of what we do here, which is your mission statement? What do you do here? Mm -hmm. And is this a good fit for you? Does it fit with how? We do things here, um, which comes to your values, you know, and sometimes you have to make adjustments to say, well, good idea is uniquely what we do, but we need to make some adjustments and how we go about doing this so that it aligns with our values here and the behaviors we want to exhibit here. Um, And then lastly, asking that question about your vision statement. Does Mm -hmm. it create the world that we're here to create? And that really, by throwing it through those set of filters, you're going to weed out an awful lot of options that perhaps aren't the best ones for you to pursue. Um, And for those people out there who are like, but, but, but it's a big idea and it's really (laughs) cool, you know, just because you don't do it doesn't mean you can't find a way to make it happen. Maybe you need to find a partner who has those unique capabilities. Maybe you need to off a separate company, you know, incubate it and spin it off because it's that important. There are lots of different ways that you can figure out how to, to bring that about. And certainly you could make the decision that something is that freaking important that you need to expand your unique capabilities to make it happen, but do so deliberately, judiciously, and understand what that's going to mean for your organization versus, oh, we should do this, we should do this, we should do this, we should do this, you know, which is where you get back to that noise factor, you know, Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how to move things forward. I guess one of the questions I have is how do people understand when something's noise? Because there are certain things that are going to be I want to say come across at least to me as auxiliary, but everyone needs to do like marketing, sales, legal compliance. These things don't necessarily scream, this is my purpose, but every business has to do it in order to succeed, right? And so like, like my purpose is not to be a salesman, but I need to sell my business in order to fulfill my purpose. So how do people like look at some of these tasks and some of these things and understand when something becomes this, distraction that's really not serving the purpose versus I'd say a business necessary component of what you do, what you operate. So I think that to ask exactly the question that you asked, you know, is this something that is essential to us existing as a living organization? We have to file our taxes. As my grandmother said, you must, Mm -hmm. you must die and pay taxes. So we have to pay taxes. You know, we need to engage in some type of marketing, I'm going to use that word really broadly. We must acquire customers in, you know, in order to do that. But I think where you can start to be more specific is thinking about how those things fit in with helping you to, to fulfill your purpose. So instead of, you know, we're going to spray and pray our marketing, which, you know, and sales, which most of us, since the term exists, knows that that's not not the best way to do it. You know, we know exactly who we serve. We've talked to them. So we know what value to deliver to them and really being deliberate about getting out to those people because we don't need to, you know, we don't need to get out to everybody. We need to get out to the people that we actually serve 
And how do we go about doing that? Same looking internally, right? Like you need to support your team so that they can do their best work. That is 100% one of the most important parts of being a purpose-driven business. It's not noise at all. I don't know if you've ever watched the the TV show Merlin. Uh, it's a favorite of mine. Uh, oh, one no, of them, I haven't seen it yet, but... It's fabulous. So it's it's a retelling of the King Arthur myth, one of our most you know popular. Yeah. But in this particular retelling, Merlin is the title character. And they chose to make Merlin and Arthur the same age. And they're young, I, I would say somewhere between 15 and 18, but the, they don't give mm-hmm. you a specific you know, number. It's fascinating because, and I'm, I'm writing an article about this right now, they, they talk about them as being two sides of the same coin. One cannot mm-hmm. exist or succeed without the other. And the same is true for your business, right? Like you can't, you can't deliver value to the people you serve if you don't have a team there to deliver that value effectively, right? So one must go with the other, which is a huge shift. I think, you know, thinking about the difference between money being the goal and your purpose being the point of the business, um, that is a big shift for leaders right now. I think how we've taken care of our people for a lot of businesses has basically been noise, you know, like, oh, well, we got to do this, you know, or people won't come to, you know, ping pong table, you know, like we have <laughs> yeah. to do this or people won't come here versus what I think people are really pushing back for right now, which is this needs to be a good use of my time or I'm not going to work here, which is a totally different type of conversation. One of the things that a lot of employees want, especially younger employees, are some sort of work-life balance or work-life integration, whatever term. I tend to not get hung up on terms, more just like what actually happens. You know, like they want room to take part in other pursuits that they need for their own you know, well-being, whether it be going out to exercise in the middle of the day or um, mental health resources has become, you know, a much bigger and bigger thing. And at first glance, if you think about something from a purely profit-driven or purely revenue-driven model, you'd say, okay, you know, taking care of an employee's mental health, whether it be giving them balance or actually providing mental health resources through your, you know, healthcare plan is a pure just cost from the money-driven model. It's a pure cost. It's a purely just, oh, this is this is going to sink us money. And the whole thought about it is that, is that just going to, you know, mitigate risk? Is it, a, is it a risk mitigator to put this mental health resource in here or not? But when you think about it from a purpose-driven model, you almost get in the blurred, the lines of the whole customers first versus employees first type of thing where it says, okay, if you take care of the people, the people will then take care of your customers. And in that case, it becomes a, a much different way of thinking about some of these, I guess, newer perks that employees, especially younger ones, are now starting to, I don't want to say demand, but you know, really inquire about when they do look for jobs. Absolutely. Someone got upset in a, a LinkedIn thread that I was going back yeah. and forth on. And I'm always happy to talk to people who are excited about what I'm saying and people who are not, you know, because sometimes you learn more from the latter than you do from the former. But the conversation was about like, I don't get it, you know, it's entitlement, you know, whatever. And it's like, turn it around. You know, presumably you hired these people, you brought them onto your team because you thought they were an A player and because you need their contributions in order to do and grow whatever it is that you do. Mm -hmm. 
why would you not want to invest in their ability to do that the best way that they can? I mean, do you really think owners of sports teams aren't bending over backwards to enable their athletes to perform at their absolute best level? Absolutely oh, they yeah. are because that's that's it. That's the product. You know, like I need you to win the game and we can have like a cooperation versus, you know, competition conversation later, but I think the the metaphor is apt, you know, that sure. like you won't be successful in achieving your goals without the help of these people and presumably you chose them because they're bringing something valuable to you. So we get really excited about bringing them in the door, but once people are hired, we move to this kind of mechanical management mentality where they become a commodity that we sort of treat like a machine versus recognizing that there's still a person and there's a lot there to be invested in and invested and supported in a different way in some cases than we have in the past in order to to help them be really successful. And I think that's only going to continue as more and more work shifts to being sort of knowledge-based work Versus, you know, strictly like I sit here and I put the head of a pin on pins all day, yeah, every yeah. day. I do not degrade that work at all. You know, like we need all types of work moving forward. And I think sometimes we forget that, that all work can be purposeful and that person needs support also. That sort of original type of work, that original assembly line type of work has kind of pushed us into that. Well, people only work for money and, you know, we need to make sure that they're on and they're doing their thing and they're doing it as efficiently as possible versus saying this is human. They have contributions to make. How do I help them to do that most effectively that they want to make their contributions here to help fulfill our purpose, our shared purpose here as an organization versus going and giving their contributions to someone else? Yeah. And uh, it's really interesting because one of the things that I always say about our work culture is that for a few decades failed to really process this transition from the assembly line, from machine-based work to knowledge-based work, which I honestly believe requires a different way of looking at things. And in the assembly line, the value produced is a pretty much one-to-one ratio to, or one-to-one relationship to the number of hours you're there. That is until you get tired and collapse. Whereas in a knowledge-based economy and some of the work that we're doing now, that's not even nearly the case. And having someone there from the same hours every day can be a hindrance depending on how a certain person's circadian rhythm works, say. So I'm trying to understand this from other points of view and and be more sympathetic. What do you think is going on in the minds of the people who are looking at some of these changes in the way we're doing work, whether it be the remote work, whether it be the health and wellness benefits, all the things that they refer to as entitled, but have had a lot of experience in this old, you know, 20th century, one size fits all work environment, and maybe even liked it. There might be some fear in in some people's, you know, psyche in there. I think what you're seeing a hundred percent is that change is happening. There are those people that are like, woohoo, change. I thrive on change. You know, I want to be the first Mm -hmm. person making the change, but that's like typically a fraction of people. Most of us are not, you know, wired that way. You know, it's uncomfortable. And for those out there who thrive, I come in, I do my job for 40 hours. If I want to get a promotion, I put in 50 or even 60 hours and, and that's it. And I work at this company for 40 years. You know, I think about my grandparents, you know, and how they looked at work. And I, I took my paycheck home and I supported my family. And that was an awesome thing. 
And they were very comfortable in that concept. And I think they look at some of what's happening now and they're like, you should be working harder. You should be really appreciative that you have a job, you know, because for them that was hard, you know, just to have one and have one that paid sufficiently to take care of their family. But what's interesting is at the same time, they wanted my mother, their daughter, to go further and do better. And my mother did the same thing. Mm -hmm. I want you to go further and do better. I want you to have a career or something that you love doing that also allows you to be independent. You know, the the taking care of yourself piece didn't go away. So it's woven in there, but actually seeing the differences can be really uncomfortable. And I think specifically looking at managers, which is usually, you know, in CEOs, which is usually where you see the most kind of downing of the shift. I think for them, you know, I wrote a piece about how micromanagement, how to have some empathy for that person, you know, because they've been promoted because they had skills and talents. Now, instead of being in total control of their success, because it was based purely on their own work, their success is now based on the work of others, you know, and I think for a lot of people, they're people who micromanage are insecure. You know, they are struggling with the fact that, well, if I'm not monitoring your computer 24 hours a day, how do I know that you're working? For someone like me, I'm like, when the project doesn't show up at the deadline, you're going to know. <laughs> For them, it's a fear. It's an insecurity that things aren't happening because that affects their day. It affects the respect of their team. It, you know, it affects the, the organization's ability to actually get things done. And you so intelligently pointed out that as we're shifting to more knowledge work, even in businesses that are still manufacturing-based or construction-based or whatever, even in that, um, those are being supported by robotics, technology, and other things. How are we thinking about the fact that just because someone is logged into their computer between the hours of nine and five does not necessarily mean they did anything productive or effective, you know, and how Mm -hmm. do we start to shift away from an output model, counting the things, the different things we did to an outcomes model, which is actually looking at the difference made by whatever it is that we did. Did you actually deliver the value or did you just go through motions, you know, and I think that that's going to require more trust um, on the part of leaders in the people that work with and for them um, to be able to do the job and different types of controls and checkpoints to know if something has gone wildly off track because that that people confuse autonomy for, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. It's like, not exactly. You know, you should still be giving your people support. They should still have guidelines. They should still know where to go when they have a question, right? Like throwing people into the deep end and being like, good luck is not really, (laughs) really the right answer, but it is a different way of working, you know, one I sort of loved since I started my first company. And to me, the whole point of having a team is that you should be smarter than me and coming up with better ideas. You know, like that's why I brought you here. But that takes a certain type of leader. Um, And I think for a long time, those were not necessarily the traits that we prioritized. Leadership is something that people don't really necessarily learn. It's something you need to develop or I guess traditional instructional learning. I want to make the distinction between the learning by doing, which is a more powerful, but also more costly, I guess, way of learning because learning by doing means you try to start a business and it doesn't work because you got distracted or you marketed to everyone and everything, or you marketed to too few people, even though that's less of a problem, frequently it can happen versus the 
you know, the instructional learning, the traditional learning. So leadership seems like it's mostly learned by, by doing. And some people out there are still learning how to be a leader. You're spot on. There are different ways to learn. And there are some things that, you know, no matter how many articles I give you on leadership traits, like you're just kind of not going to know. So you, you step up and give it a try. And I think that's where sometimes team members can be quite scathing of their, you know, manager slash boss slash leader, you know, and it's like, sometimes that's earned and deserved. Other times it's like, give them some benefit of the doubt they're learning also. How do you do that together? And because there isn't like a great way to do it other than to actually go and start trying to do it and to bring in mentors and advisors and, you know, hopefully other smart people to help balance out what you don't know, or even teach you what you don't know so that you, you get that opportunity and, you know, mentorship people who lead by example, so that when that manager moves up and you move into their role, you had something to watch, you know, all this time to say, oh, that's actually how I should be being comfortable mentoring others, you know, and leading by example, I think is something that we, we like to say, but don't think about the time investment that actually goes into doing that versus, you know, a couple hundred bucks to go take this online course and you're going to get this little certificate at the end. Um, And I don't mean to suggest that that's a bad thing, that learning that way or there aren't skills that can be learned that way. Um, But recognizing that there are other things that don't get learned as well that way. and, And how do we make space for that? Because in addition to number one, being paid well, which I, I can't leave out of this conversation that I think sometimes people hear, people want purposeful work so I can pay them less. And it's like, no, um, <laughs> first and yeah. foremost, you've got to pay them well for the time they invest in their work, giving them purpose where they're doing work that really allows them to bring their skills to the table and be a part of something bigger than themselves and gives them that three time freedom that I think has really become one of the biggest benefits most people are looking for. The last piece that becomes really important is mastery over their skills. Um, Every single person I interview to come on board to my team, one of the big things they will say that they want to be able to do is be in a position where they can learn and -hmm. grow and try new things. So if you're not thinking about making that a priority beyond the, you know, we got a new machine. So we have to teach everybody how to use the new machine, which yeah. is again, an essential mm-hmm. thing you need to do, but really thinking about what other skills, what other things are my people really itching to learn? And how do I build a flexible model that allows me to get that out to my people so that again, they can learn and grow here um, versus feeling like they have to leave in order to learn and grow. I think we all want to feel like we're on a path. One of the things that you mentioned is is mentoring. And on this podcast, I also interview uh, a lot more people who are coaches of some kind. And the types of coaches has expanded from... I remember when I was a kid, there was you were either a business coach, a life coach. I think it was just those two categories, actually. And now people can be like any type of coach. So when it comes to these ideas of coaching, mentoring, even you know therapists and stuff like that, in the world the way it is today... Those types of things become more important as part of the human experience because I feel like traditionally those types of expenses have been given a lot more scrutiny than purchasing, say, the common material items that the 1990s and turn of the century culture, for example, would 
you know, normally necessitate like, oh, I'm going to get a new, I'm going to get my kitchen remodeled tends to be much more free flowing money than I'm going to bring on a coach, a mentor, a therapist, someone to do that type of thing to really work on how I'm responding to situations, how I'm working. I think it depends drastically on who you are. Certainly as business owners, that's really up to me, you know, whether or not I choose to invest in that and whether or not I see it as a priority to invest in for my team or just something for myself or if they should be doing that. So I think you get a, you know, very different sort of range of looking at that across the board, looking at it as far as is this something that we should be doing as a society and or work community? I would say yes. You know, one of my long-term fascinations is with learning in general. I was the world's biggest nerd. Best day of the year. Every year was the first day of school. I'd Mm -hmm. be there with my new outfit and my backpack and my freshly sharpened Ticonderoga number two pencils ready to go, man. Like love going to Ticonderogas. Oh God, I have it, man. Cause it's just not really a pencil otherwise. Um, so ready to go, loved going. And one of the things that struck me as I sort of went through and I, I pursued an MFA. So I went through school pretty long, traditional school was what happens when I'm done going to school? Like, how do I keep learning all of the things that I probably should be learning or being exposed to because the world is going to keep changing. Even what I studied in school in some cases is no longer the way that it's actually being done. You know, there are options and opportunities that were not covered in the course material because they didn't exist, you know, at the time that it was covered. So what does that mean? And we know, and I cannot remember where I read this, that one of the best forms of instruction is one-on-one. So how do we start to feel comfortable saying that actually we're really committed not only to having a great workforce, but a great society? How do we make that more available. And I don't have a brilliant answer to the underlying question, which is how do you make that more affordable? A big piece of that, hence why, you know, MOOC courses, that big trend there for a while, because it was Mm -hmm. cheaper, but not necessarily better learning or targeted to where you are and what you need to work on. I myself delayed investing in a coach for quite a while. And it's one of the few sort of mistakes, you know, true mistakes that I made as a business leader, like took me stepping back and saying, where are the people who I'm sort of identifying as successful? Like, what are they doing that I'm not doing? One of the the most overwhelming trends was like, they all have a coach and I don't. So I Hmm. probably should go get one of those. And I consider him now like the leader of my A team. And I'm much more comfortable being like, I'm building a team around me because this idea that I'm going to do it all myself is pretty much a fallacy um, (laughs) as far as being (laughs) successful and helping me to grow and see things that I didn't see. So I'm hoping that that trend continues to grow and that people feel comfortable doing that and that we can find ways to do it that are still effective, um, still compensate the person doing the coaching fairly, but but open it up more to people who have different budgetary availability to make that investment. It is always a challenge because, you know, most coaches are people who have a lot of experience, have a lot to offer. And one-on-one is always going to be a little bit more pricey, right? Because being in a class with 10 people, and even think about an example of a yoga class, right? Someone can charge 10 bucks a class and have 10 people and they're they're still making a hundred bucks. But if you're going to give a one-on-one to get a hundred bucks that hour, well... You, you got to pay it. That one person, you know, and then there are some coaching models, of course, that do really well with that kind of group learning environment. And so, but, you know, like you said, there are some things that need to be one-on-one because 
what works for one person doesn't really work for another person. And I'm guessing that's why it would kind of be missing the point to just say like, okay, when it comes to distractions, here's a list of the 10 most common distractions that people encounter that cause them to waste time in their businesses. Yeah, that would be hard because what's a distraction for my business may not be a distraction for yours because your purpose is different. But I think if we look at it, you know, at an individual level, I think we can certainly find some key themes like the overpowering notification noise, you know, that we've all been trained like Pavlov's dog, that bing goes off. We're like, what does it say? Oh my God. I need to check my Slack right away. Oh my God. I'm like cooking dinner right now. Yeah. You know, I'm a tech minimalist and people are always like, well, you're backwards. I'm like, it's not about being backwards. Technology is a tool. If it's not helping me to achieve what I need to achieve, then it probably doesn't need to be here. Continuing to kind of you know, review, do I need all this tech? Do I not? Following that, that adage of turning off your notifications so that you choose to check versus it telling you when to check is a, a huge one. I leave mine off most of the time. I turn my I have a thing that turns my email off so I don't see the things coming in. So that when I sit down to say, okay, it's checking my email time, you know, that was my choice. That's definitely the whole technology sphere, I think is fascinating. And then thinking about The other piece that I have been working to deal with is identifying and working on those things that just like a a business, presumably you have goals you need to achieve and being able to have systems for yourself of, well, but I just read about this cool idea and I think it's really exciting. Like put it in your idea pen, review those quarterly, you know, like whatever your system is for making sure that you don't take yourself away from the doing, you know, because ideas mm-hmm. are awesome. Execution is better to keep moving things forward. Yeah. Anyone can have an idea, right? And if you have an idea, it's likely someone else has had it. Uh, at and some and point, even if you know? they do, you know, there are so many and recognizing that even though I think some people look at our time and they say, well, like, Life's pretty good. Like, yeah, but it can always be better. You know, like there are so many ideas. There's so many opportunities. Your ability to build, launch a website, send email, even build an app. Like everything has become so much more accessible, whether you have particular skills or not. Mm -hmm. It it can be. And it's one of my alongside technology. Just the abundance of ideas is one of the biggest distractions for just individuals, let alone businesses, to sticking with whatever it is they chose long enough to determine if it's working or not. I think so many things don't come to fruition because we didn't see instantaneous results or something shinier came along. I mean, the world moves at a really fast pace, especially like when you talk about the school stuff. I don't, I don't think anyone had, had a class in college called Blockchain 101 you do have to give things the right amount of time to see, as you said, see it's going to work. In your business, what types of organizations do you typically engage with? So we like to look at organizations that have big ideas. They're people that serve other people, and they're typically working in a distributed fashion, whether that's between multiple physical locations, physical and virtual locations, or a totally virtual and they have a team of somewhere between 30 and 1,000 people. Okay, so you have that niche uh, size, essentially. We can work with larger organizations, but we've been focusing on some of the smaller ones first to make sure that it works there. Uh, And the reason that I get excited personally, and this is a personal choice, other people will go out and deal with the bigger as we grow. 
But I love working with smaller teams because you have so much more opportunity to refocus the entire ship um, versus the larger and larger the organization gets, the harder and harder it is to be like, wow, you got noise all over the place. (laughs) Like it's going to take years to try to get this course corrected versus smaller teams usually can do it more rapidly and more thoroughly. And, you know, admittedly, it's more satisfying to see them reap all the benefits versus a fraction of them. And um, with this course correction, is this something that's kind of a, a continuing struggle? Like, you know, for example, you could get your ship right, be like, okay, we eliminated these these five things or however many things there are that are really kind of distracting us, taking up our time unnecessarily. But then like 18 months later, something else comes up or 18 months later, the world changes in a way where to serve the purpose that you want to serve, suddenly what you were doing in September 2022 is not really working well in March 2024. Yep. So great question. One so often not asked is that one, uh, when we work with organizations, it's very common to do this type of work with the C-suite. And then it's like, dictate that down and have a great time. We don't. Um, We actually build working groups of all their stakeholders. So there's a working group of the people you serve. There's a team working group. There's a leadership working group. And if you have another stakeholder group that's really important to you, perhaps funders or donors, if you're a nonprofit, or even partners, that's a really big piece of your model. Um, so that as we're implementing matter logic, this different way of thinking and running our business, we're doing that with input from all of these different groups. And all of these different groups are getting the learning, the skill expansion to be able to use the logic once our team leaves. One of the big pieces of that is looking at their decision-making process. Do we make decisions oh, wow. yeah. in line with our purpose or not? Because if you really think about a business, it's a collective group of people making decisions every day, right? Because yeah. you take no action mm-hmm. without a decision first. And the other piece that we work to give them is what we call calibration, which is what you do monthly, quarterly, annually, and every three years to make sure that you're engaging these different groups, that you're continuing to get input, and that you're adjusting accordingly to make sure that you're staying aligned around what it is that you're here to do with purpose you're here to fulfill. Nice. And If someone listening right now uh, has an organization, 30 to 1,000 people, and would like to get a hold of you or hear more about your business, uh, what would be the best way for someone to uh, contact you or learn more? So the best way to get a hold of me personally is to find me on LinkedIn. Uh, You'll find that I am probably wearing a black shirt on a white background, um, so I should be pretty easy to find. (laughs) I will absolutely take messages. If you say, hey, I heard you on this podcast, I will make sure that you know beyond my usual 15 minutes, I will give you a full 45 minutes to talk oh, about nice. your business, what you're doing, um, and what I can do to help you within the span of 45 minutes or beyond. That's the best way to find me. But if you want to learn a little bit more about MatterLogic as well, um, please feel free to visit www.matterlogic.co. Um, we've actually put Um, a lot of our thoughts, most of the system um, up online um, so that people can access it and learn more about it as you choose. Nice. And then one final question, because we've talked about some trends. We've talked about, you know, how people are looking at work differently. What do you see the world looking like, say, 15 years from now, if like your mission and the mission of the people you work with and a lot of similarly aligned people were to kind of continue to make some progress? I think there's a couple of trends emerging when this will all come and take shape. You know, 15 years may not be enough time, but looking at at 
two particular things. One, um, I think starting to see work as everything we do, anything that we invest our time in and takes effort is work. Whether you're doing it for pay, you're supporting your family, you're investing in a hobby, it all takes your time and effort. And starting to look at life as all of those things versus continuing to try to look at work and our other crap as if they were completely different. All in buckets, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Because they're not, they're all taking your time, which is what makes up your life ultimately. And the second trend that I see emerging, and I think, you know, if we were successful, we'd be continuing is how we actually look at individual workers. And instead of kind of seeing them as this faceless, you know, that's our human capital sort of mechanical approach, seeing them as actual individuals and that these are much like the Star Wars Rebel Alliance versus the, you know, empire, you know, that these people are choosing to come, they're choosing to contribute to our organization. And how do we treat them, whether that's because they actually are subcontractors, you know, and sort of this traditional employee sort of frame and starts to fade away or because we're simply treating them differently, regardless of the legal structure, we start to see that coming together of individuals into a group um, as opposed to this kind of machine that we've been building with people involved where necessary is a trend that I hope continues. Oh, well, I certainly hope it continues as well because um, cognitive wheel uh, as an ENFP that doesn't really uh, resonate well with me. But Katie, I would like to thank you so much for joining us today on Actions Antidotes. And I would also like to thank everybody out there listening, tuning into Actions Antidotes. Uh, encourage you to tune into some more episodes and continue to follow on the story of bringing people to the place where they're more likely to be doing the things that they really want to be doing or the things they choose to show up to as opposed to the things they feel like they're obligated to do. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. Have a fantastic day, everybody. 